You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Allison Tate is an Australian freelance writer, blogger, and author with more than 20 years professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 20 of So You Want to Be a Writer. It's great that you can join us today. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with my co-host, Alison Tate. How are you, Al? I'm very well, thank you. I'm just sitting here looking forward to discussing writing with you because I would much rather be discussing writing than actually writing at the well, moment. Well, so of that's course. Good. That's yes. It's called procrasty podcasting, <laughs> I think. We can procrasty <laughs> in so many different ways. Can't we? we have so many options at our fingertips. It's great. What have you been up to since we last spoke? Uh, I'm well. I'm still writing. I'm sort of <laughs> funny for- that I know. I I'm forging ahead. What I'm struggling with at the moment is that I have um, obviously I have edits and and rewrites and things to do on the Mapmaker Chronicles series, but I also have a new book to write in that series as well. And I just I just want to do it all the time. Mm. Like I, all I want to do is just throw myself into that world and work on it. But of course, I have also a million other writing jobs that, that require doing. I have little features to write and I have social media work to do and I have lots of different things and I'm just, I'm having to, I mean, I've always said on my blog and I've always said to everyone I talk to, you know, the paid work must come first. Mm. And in this instance, I'm finding it so difficult because I need to, I'm sounding a bit chipmunky here, aren't I? But I need to... Um, I need to focus on that week-to-week paid work as well as the overarching um, fiction work that I need to do as well, which is also paid. So I'm finding myself in this quandary all the time. Mm. So that's where I'm at. I'm having a push-me-pull-you sort of situation going on. And wow. You? While sounding like a chipmunk. While which, sounding which like a chipmunk. Which you're not, but anyway. <laughs> I just feel like I'm speaking really well because I'm so excited. <laughs> anyway. Well, let's, let me think. Um, last night I went to a small bar. Oh. Yes, it's slightly different. I actually went with a journo friend of mine and she wanted to go there because she is writing an uh, article on the hidden secrets of Sydney. And so this was a kind of quite a hidden bar and so we needed to explore it, of course, in the, names of, in the name of research. Yes. And I thought it was kind of interesting because I had, you know, not long ago written a story on the hidden secrets of Melbourne. Uh-huh. And, you know, it gave me this great excuse to explore so many different parts and restaurants, which, of course, I wouldn't have normally. But I think it's great when you want to find out more about something. As a, you know, feature writer, you can always pitch a story that will give you an excuse to find out more about that topic. And I I remember ages ago when I needed to, when I was applying for a mortgage and I wanted to find out all of these things about a mortgage. So I pitched a story about, I can't remember the exact angle, but obviously it was about mortgages. And that gave me the excuse to ring all of these experts and quiz them on for a very legitimate reason. But it's, I think it's a great um, 
kind of like side benefit, really. Well, it's a get, hidden hey. secret, isn't it? Yes. It's is a hidden secret. No, it's one of my favourite things. I remember, particularly when I was an anxious new mother and I had all these things going on, one particular story that stands out for me was that my oldest son, at the time he was probably three or four, mm. was having these nightmares all the time and I was oh. beside myself and I needed to find out more about them. So I pitched a story and then I got to speak to like three of the top experts on children, you know, in child psychology, et cetera, mm. et cetera, and find out that it was all perfectly normal. Yes. And that, you know, I was probably over anxious about nothing and we were all good from there. But yeah, he was having dreams about koalas that eat people's feet. Oh. <laughs> And you're trying to find the okay. psychological root of that problem and, yeah, you can really turn yourself inside out. So it helps a great deal to speak to a very calm, rational person who goes, oh, yes, perfectly normal. <laughs> to have dreams about koalas eating your feet happens to all of us. Well, he's always had a very good imagination. What can I say? <laughs> So, in the world of writing, publishing and blogging this week, I came across an interesting link about a writer who actually has a novel, a Canadian writer, and her name is Emily Schultz, and she published her first novel eight years ago, and it was called Joyland, uh, which is the same novel as a Stephen King novel. Right. And the interesting part that's, you know, appeared this week is that Several Amazon customers who were looking for the Stephen King 2013 novel, so she did come first, right. uh, found hers instead, and God knows why, but they bought hers even though they wanted to buy Stephen King's and read it, still still not knowing it was hers, still thinking it was Stephen King's, were disappointed because it was very un-Stephen King-like and left uh, you know, feedback and comments to that effect on about her book, oh. which she thought was very depressing because they were very bad reviews, some very nasty. Oh. But, um, you know, a little bit of time has passed and she has kind of gotten over it because she's received recently checks for the royalties of all these people buying her book by accident and um, she's now you know quite uh, prosaic about it and has written a blog post on the uh, items that she has spent the checks on including you know haircut um. spending I love the name of it spending the Stephen King money I find it really fascinating though that um, that people can buy it without realizing that it's not the Stephen King book, like, is is that something that ebooks are bringing us in the sense that maybe people aren't looking at the thumbnail closely enough? Or I think these are the same people who go to the wrong movie and halfway through only realise, oh my god, I'm not in Harry Potter. <laughs> I'm in Stephen King. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or that some of them don't realise at all. That Voldemort character's got very strange all of a sudden. <laughs> exactly. So I don't think it really has that much to do with the ebooks or whatever. I think these people sort of exist in the world and um, it, it would happen to them regardless of what they were buying. Oh, well. Well, you know, I'm glad that she's profiting in some way from, yeah. from their errors. Good That's lovely. Good on you, Emily. <laughs> Good on you indeed. What else um, is happening? Well, speaking of that, I just um, just while we're on the subject of royalties, I, I found a really interesting um, little blog post in my travels this week um, on the self-publishing roundtable uh, blog, which mm -hmm. is by indie authors for indie authors. And the name of it, of course, caught my attention. The headline got me. <laughs> 
how you can make $50,000 a year without ever hitting the bestseller list. So this is something that maybe Emily should be researching more closely. Mm. Um, And it's written by a guy called Kevin Michael. And it's basically how, you know, I think people get obsessed with the Amazon Top 100 bestseller, like people Mm. giving away free books and 99 cent books and everything, trying to push themselves onto that list because, you know, once you're on the front page there, you've got a better chance of making sales. Whereas this guy says that you can make 50,000 a year um, without ever hitting that uh, particular list. Um, You just need a 1,500 rank Mm. consistently. Mm. So 75 sales a day is what they're saying, which to me is still a lot of books to sell on a day, but maybe that's just me. Um, you know, if you sell 75 a day and your book is two ninety nine, you make $150 a day, which is, you know, not bad money for, for you know, having sitting around, I suppose. Yeah. Once it's done, it's done. Um, but I guess it, that just comes down to the question of, you know, how much is enough? Like, do you need 50000 a year? Do you need more than 50000 a year? And I think um, it, when people put a book out, they – I don't think anyone's ever really got a very clear idea in their head no. beyond making, beyond being a million bestseller, <laughs> of course. Yeah, of course. And world domination. Like, does anyone ever actually think, well, how much do I really need to make off this book to make it worthwhile? Is that, I mean, is worthwhile even a question? I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think few people actually think of the dollar figure that they feel that they need to make because they're so busy just being excited that they're going to be published. And then they're so busy actually writing the damn thing. But I think what this post neglects to say, and even though it does have a great headline, how you can make $50,000 a year without ever hitting bestseller list, I think it should be more accurately titled, how you can make $50,000 a year without ever hitting the bestseller list but with working your ass off 20 (laughs) hours a day just trying to game the system so that you do make some kind of list or that you you can you know make 75 sales a day because it's it's hard it's it's hard work it is a business after you write the book you need to get it out there and you need to make sure people are buying it and downloading it. So, um, yes, you don't have to make the best sell list, but you still got to do a whole heap of stuff to, you know, get anywhere near, um, you know, success really. And how do you how do you quantify success? That's the other question yes. to ask yourself. But well, we could talk about that for two hours too. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So but instead, we instead. will move on to a, a link that um, we found in the Guardian this week, and it's about the renaissance of pen pals. So this article is saying that it you know lots of us probably had of a certain age had pen pals when we were. <laughs> I'm way too young for that, Val. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm just totally online, you know that? Yeah, totally. Um, and it says, it would be easy to assume that email and social media killed off the traditional pen pal. However, it seems the hobby is undergoing a revival. Online schemes such as the International Geek Girl Pen Pals Club and the League of Extraordinary Pen Pals are springing up connecting letter writers writers around the world. So did, did did you have a pen pal? Are you still in touch with her? Well, as we or discussed, him? I'm way too young for that. But yes, um, right. to be honest, I don't think I ever did. I might have uh, – I remember looking at the – you remember they used to get magazines and books and things, school magazines and stuff like that that had addresses in the back that you mm, could write to? Mm. And I remember looking at them and thinking I probably should do that and then I don't think I ever did because I do love getting letters. I mean, even today – 
you know, a letter in the post. It's a very rare thing not to be a bill. However, I do love getting them. Um, I used to basically, my cousins all lived away from me and I used to write to them. Um, They were always much better than I was because they would write regularly and I would write sporadically. Um, But, yeah, no, I I can't remember ever doing that. I think because I had the cousins away, I used to write Mm. to them more than sort of somebody random overseas. But, um, yeah, what about you? Did you? Uh, well, actually, my dad had a pen pal when he was very young, you know, like in the 1950s or whatever. And then he had a daughter, me, and his pen pal had a daughter. And um, they put us in touch. So we probably were pen pals from the age of, I don't know, maybe nine till about 16, Mm -hmm. at which point – and I had a very, very sheltered upbringing and she was in um, somewhere in the UK, like, you know, Birmingham or Leeds or somewhere. And um, Leeds it was actually, now it's Mm. come back to me. And um, she wrote to me and she was 16 and she um, was about to have a baby and I was really surprised because I I had a very sheltered upbringing. We still continued to write, you know, even after she had her second baby. And it just sort of (laughs) occurred to me then that she's probably a grandmother now. and um, Or a great-grandmother. possibly even a great-grandmother. We did lose touch. And I subsequently kind of ended up, like you, writing to my cousins who, you know, were – who lived somewhere else. And – and we wrote to each other all through our teens and, in fact, both ended up being uh, journalists at magazines, interestingly enough. Wow. Hmm. There you go. See, your pen pal history is so much more interesting than mine. Well, <laughs> you, should, you, should write a, you should write a book about that for sure. Yeah, there's lots of things I should write a book about. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of writing books about things, yes. um, I uh, was reading – I came across a link on abc.net.au, which I do love a little bit of ABC Mm. action, I have to say. And um, it's a piece written by Fiona McFarlane, who, of course, we interviewed in a previous podcast about her book, The Night Guest. And it is the story of her journey to publication, which is is fantastic. And it's beautifully written, of course, and she's a lovely, lovely writer. But the thing that got me about it and the thing I love is this opening line, I wrote my first novel, an 11-chapter epic called The Fake God Mm -hmm. at the age of six. Mm -hmm. Apparently, I knew what a novel was and that it was possible to write one. The two surviving copies of The Fake God were typed by my mother, who unfortunately corrected my spelling. (laughs) (laughs) which makes me seem much more obnoxiously prodigious than I actually was. So I I read that and I laughed to myself because I have – I don't remember writing a novel at the age of six. I I was not that person. I did have a poem in the local newspaper at the age of 10, which, you know – must put me up there somewhere, yeah, right? Yeah, good, yeah, yeah. I wrote a blog post about that once. Actually, I should put a link to that in the show notes because it was fairly amusing. Um, but um, what made me laugh about it is that both of my boys, who are now 10 and 7, are prodigious novel writers. Good Lord. Prolific. Pro- actually, prodigious is the wrong word. Prolific novel writers wow. is probably more to the point. Now, and it makes me laugh so much because the notion of what a novel is is um is quite hilarious. So I've got a ten year old, and he's currently working on a book with his best friend, and they're they're doing the, they're doing an outline for this book before they begin the writing process because they've learned that planning is quite a useful thing. Yeah, <laughs> which they clearly did not learn from me. Um, 
but he said to me, he came in to me yesterday and he said, so we're planning this book. I said, great. And he said, told me what it was about. And he goes, and we, we've worked out that what we need to make this book really good, mm-hmm. we need adventure, <laughs> we need action, and we need romance. Oh, my God. And I said, romance? <laughs> and he said, yes. And I said, how are you planning to put the romance in? And he said, I don't know, mum, because, you know, that would involve kissing and stuff. <laughs> so we're not sure about that. But it made me laugh so much that they had this. Oh and, of course, I have goodness. my um, writing group that I teach at my school. Yeah. And the thing that really got me when I first started a few years ago is that from day one, when we were in the room discussing what is a character – all they wanted to do was get to the writing of the book. They were all wow. writing books. Nobody writes stories anymore. Nobody writes poems anymore. Yes. It's all about I'm writing a novel. So it's a really interesting thing. And I'm going, guys, you need to learn, you know, how to describe a tree before you can <laughs> write a novel. Wow. So anyway, that's that's my story there. But what have Ooh. you ever written? Did you write uh, a novel at six? Well, no. So, way to make you feel inadequate. Um, you know, she's clearly an overachiever. Uh, but actually, now that I see, interestingly, now that I sit here and think about it, no, I did not write an 11 ch- chapter epic or any sort of epic at and that's the age of six. 11 chapters. Yeah. But I do recall, and it's, it is interesting what you do as a child and how that manifests itself later in life. I do recall making magazines. Oh. Like actually cutting out pictures and pasting them, creating my own masthead, typing up the pages so that they, on a typewriter in those days, on my dad's IBM with the little golf ball, and making it fit a, like around the shape oh, of a picture. So even at that age, I do recall making magazines because I was slightly obsessed with them even from very young. There you go. See, it's all in there right from the start, isn't it? That's right. So what is our writing book of the week? Um, Well, I thought this week that given that we've had Stephen King in our uh, previous segment, that we would discuss his uh, classic book, Stephen King on writing, which is one of my favourite writing books. Um, The reason I love it, and and I'm going to be quite honest about this, Mm. is it's intensely and inherently readable. It's one of the few books about writing. The other one would be Anne Lamott's Bird by Bird. Absolutely. That you just want to read from cover to cover. It's not – it's the most interesting and, um, you know, he writes a page turner of a book about writing, which I just Mm. – you know, to me the the fact that you can even, like, do that is – says to me that it's it's definitely a book worth reading. And it's, of course, full of humongously – um, humongous numbers of fantastic tips about writing and you will see, you know, Pinterest quotes from this book all mm. over the internet. Um, and there's a reason for that. It is really a very, very good practical um, and, as I said, in- intensely readable book about writing. So if you haven't read it, mm. um, then I, I do recommend it. It's definitely a staple. It's one you just have to have on your shelf. I think so. Yeah. I think it's, yeah. And, I mean, whether you love Stephen King's style or not, mm. um you know, that's because, of course, the camps are well and truly split on that as well. Mm. I still think that it's something that that you should read because it's, um, you know, nobody writes a commercial page turner quite like he does. Mm. And um, if you can get even one sort of small segment of his success out of that, then I think it's worth reading. Fantastic. Hmm. So what's happening in the world of blogging this week? Right. Well, the world of blogging this week is quite an interesting one because, as you may remember, last um, – 
last episode, I made an announcement that I was <laughs> going to blog more often because, you know, really I had neglected my blog and once a week was not enough. I'm totally reneging on that this week. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, go <Wow. laughs> I know, I know. But you know what I thought? I realised that at, there are times in a person's life when a person has to be sensible. And um, this is one of those times. I have so many projects throw you know in the air so many words in my life I'm writing so many words at the moment mm. that I need to think very very carefully about where I put them so I've decided I must save my words for my fiction for the time being and continue with my slow and steady once a week blogging and it's really interesting because a um a blogger that that I've known you know via various conferences and on Twitter and social media for, for pretty much since I started for four four and a half years ago is um, Zoe Martin, and at the same moment that I was having my epiphany about this, she put up a post called Getting Off the Hamster Wheel and Reviving Creativity. Yeah. And it's on theshake.com.au. And it's pretty much about the fact that you can get so caught up in trying to feed your social media, your blog, your all those different things that you're trying to do, that you forget to focus on the project that you really want to do um, and you find yourself squidging it in 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 around other things and when in actual fact you need to focus on the work and so um, it it was a good good thing for me to read as I was having my epiphany because I thought well at least it's not just me and um, I think it's really worth reading for you know, anyone else who may be feeling a little bit the same, like, you know, how many words do you have a week and where are you going to put them? I think that's what you need to think about. Would you agree? I would agree. I don't think that we have a finite number of words, but we do, we, our well of creativity can get low. Mm. So I think that, you know, we, you can spout words however you want. It's just that the quality of the words is what is going to suffer or the originality or freshness or the ideas, that sort of thing. So I think that when you are, are on the hamster wheel and it's not just with social media but it's with you know packing your week with appointments and saying yes to too many things including your social real life social engagements <laughs> going to small bars you mean yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> real life remember that so um and, and I think if you can if you do pack yourself too you know make, make yourself too busy that creative well doesn't get to be refilled Having said that, I think that it shouldn't be used as an excuse for idleness (laughs) because sometimes we can sort of say, oh, no, I can't do that. I can't, you know, do the laundry (laughs) or whatever because (laughs) I need to centre my creative soul. And um, So that would be procrastinating. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) But I, I do agree that you do need to remember that even though you can push on and especially if you're competent at what you do, you can push on and it'll still be adequate if not okay if not good but if you want it to be something to you that you're actually really proud of and that's that's really good you do need to give it that breathing space so that you can create it when you're in that flow Hmm. yes but anyway so Speaking Let's, of creating in the flow. Yes, creating in the flow. We'll, I, um, this week, our writer in residence is Clint Gregan. Now, Clint is the blogger behind Reservoir Dad, and you'll find him at reservoirdad.com. And um, if you, you know, if, if one was into labels, one might call him a daddy blogger. But really, <laughs> he's just a great blogger with an awesome, with a really um, wry sense of humour and a great voice. And uh, I think it's a very interesting chat. So let's have a listen to Clint. 
When Clint Gregan became a stay-at-home dad, he turned to blogging to connect with the world and apparently to stay sane. His awesome blog, Reservoir Dad, won the Australian Writers' Centre's Best Australian Blog Award in 2013 in the personal and parenting category. I love reading it. Clint lives in Reservoir in Melbourne with his wife Tanya and sons Archie, 9, Lewis, 7, Tyson, 4 and Mackie, 2. After winning the Best Australian Blogs competition, he came to the attention of Random House, who then approached him to write a book. So his book, also called Reservoir Dad, is now released. It's fantastic and we're thrilled to chat to Clint today on So You Want to Be a Writer. Thanks for joining us today, Clint. Thanks, Valerie. Thanks for having me. So tell us about your new book, Reservoir Dad. What's it all about? It's a kind of a memoir about my time as, uh, from the time I become a stay-at-home dad, although I go a bit um, further back into the past about my relationship um, with my wife, Tanya, as well. Um, it's, it's all the sort of craziness that happens on the domestic front line and raising kids um, with a lot of sort of laughs and a few tears along the way and um, and also from the perspective I guess from a, as a as a male in this role which is a little bit unusual mm. um, this day and age. So tell us how many kids you have and uh, when did you start being a stay-at-home dad? got four boys, Archie, Lewis, Tyson and Mackie. Um, they're all under, Archie's the oldest, he's nine and Mackie's two, he's the youngest. And I became a stay-at-home dad seven years ago. So um, Lewis was 18 months old and Archie was two and Tanya went back to work full-time and I'd gone to part-time work about six months before that. So I was getting my head around the whole idea and then um, we were straight into it, Um, me with two boys, yeah. (laughs) Why did you decide to write the book? Uh, I was basically approached by uh, random house and they asked me if I'd like to write a book and of course I said yes because I've been a writer my whole life and it started I started a blog about six months into being a stay-at-home dad because I sort of had this idea that I, I'd written novels and short stories before that and I had this idea that I couldn't focus on a long-term project when I was looking after the boys full-time mm. so so I started this blog I just sort of stumbled across what a blog was I think it was pretty new back then I thought this would be a good way for me to keep my writing skills up and record some stuff about the family and, you know, that sort of stuff. And, and then it became, funnily enough, a long-term project in itself and uh, I really enjoyed it. And it was sort of like a, it was like a personal thing for me as well. So, you know, how you can become sort of ratty and isolated um, if you're surrounded by people who don't have language above five words. <laughs> Twenty-four hours a day, so it sort of became a thing for me, which was really sort of kept me focused and was something I could focus on at the end of the day. And then after all that, anyway, last year I won the um, Australian Writers Centre personal category um, in the Blog Awards. Yep. And from that, um, Random House contacted me and said they'd been reading my blog and were wondering if I, I was interested in writing a book. And so I said I would love to, and that's what I've been doing for the last year. Great. So just take the, your, some of the listeners back. When you first started writing the blog, so that would have been six and a half years ago or thereabouts, yeah. were you writing for readers? Were you writing for yourself? Were you writing for your family? Who was your audience at the time? Who did you think you were writing for? My, my audience was, first of all, close family members. But also I was um, 
I was part of a, the Northern Dads group. I just started with them. And I initially sort of brought the idea of the blog up with them as well to say that maybe they'd like to contribute and can be like something for the Northern Dads group. So I was aware that the dads were also tuning in every week and checking out the blog, and to see, but no one else sort of picked up on it. It was just me. So um, I've become sort of more and more enamored with the blog idea. And from that I started, it was only after a little while where I started to notice a few little comments here and there and realized that far out, man, this is connected to the world, you know, and I started to get an idea that I was writing for other people yeah, probably yeah. about a year into it or so. Right. And when did you, when, what sort of were the first signs that, you know, this is getting traction, this could be something else, this could be something yeah. more than just me writing down my, you know, journaling my thoughts? Yeah, I think it was just all of a sudden I've started to get some comments from people, you know, overseas. Um, and then I stumbled across this idea, there's this parenting blog thing, you know, going on, there's other people doing this and there's like a community. And so there was a few back and forward emails and um, reading, started reading other people's blogs and I thought, you know, and I think that was a great support for me back then as well because um, I got to talk to other parents when I did find things tough at times, really tough. And um, mm. the added thing about being a man and um, just a few of the little stereotypes you come across in your day-to-day life. So it was good having that there. But I also started about, oh, I can't remember, I think it was 2010, I started a tongue-in-cheek sort of competition called the Mentally Sexy Dad Competition. And it was uh, where I basically made got some jocks made up with Mentally Sexy written on the back and Reservoir Dad on the front and asked people to take photos of their husbands wearing them doing housework um, and send them in. And believe it or not, that idea, because it was thought it was a way of showcasing men who did the sort of non-stereotypical things to provide for their family. Mm. Um, and believe it or not, it was really successful. I ended up being on the radio. And, and so once that started happening and there was like, I got, you know, over 100 entries mm. of people actually taking photos wearing the underwear and, mum and you know, women writing in saying, this is my great husband, this is what he does for me and all this sort of stuff. Um, yeah, then I realised, then it, it sort of kicked off and I think that was prob- probably why my blog sort of got that extra kick in popularity. Yeah. Because there's a lot of media around that as well. Sure. And so just for listeners who don't know, why are you called Reservoir Dad? I live in Reservoir in Melbourne. But <laughs> when I was thinking of a name for the blog, which took me all of about 30 seconds while I was starting on Blogspot, I thought Reservoir Dad, you know, it's people are going to make the assumption that's got something to do with Reservoir Dogs and I kind of like that as well. So Yeah. Yeah, so that's where it came from. And so what have been the biggest challenges for you in blogging? Um, time is always a challenge, yeah. of course. But I think because I love writing anyway and have done it since I was a kid that I I make time for it because I know that I feel better. So it's kind of like exercise, you know. If I miss a week of exercise, I, it's not until I do the exercise again that I think, oh, God, this makes I feel so much better about the world when I exercise. It's yeah. the same with writing. So I think um, but that that itself in itself can cause problems because sometimes you think I just haven't got time to do it and I really want to and so you start so finding time and scheduling things and sometimes giving up sleep to fit it in mm. um, that's the big, been the biggest challenge um, and the other thing would probably be getting used to having criticisms of things that you don't think are really up for criticism um, but I've, but you deal with that. Daily, and again, other bloggers are great support for that because they help you to see that it's just a maybe an, an idiot 
<laughs> sure. So you mentioned that you certainly did win the parenting category of the Australian Writers' Centre's Best Australian Blog Awards, yep. and that was last year. What did that award do for you? Oh, it was great confirmation. For one thing to say, the thing that I think most writers want, even if they don't admit it, is that they want some sort of validation that they've got a certain amount of skill. Mm. Um, that's why I think winning that was... Um, I think I'd rather from the Writers' Centre than from any other sort of blog award because the writing is a focus. So I really, that was, a, I don't know, just a really great feeling. It's like getting a publication, you know. It's confirmation that you're doing something right yep. um, for the years that you're putting into it. And also the direct, it hasn't been said, but I think it's the direct um, link from that to an offer to write a book. Um, so, yeah, it was just a great pat in the back and it's sort of like a keep going man you can do it you know you're doing all right and uh i don't know validation as my that i've got something to offer yeah and it brought you to the attention of random house now tell us about the book writing process so you got approached and then what happened did you go oh my god what am i supposed to do now or did you think okay this is my plan i'm going to write x number of words per day for so many months what was the actual plan and process of writing your book? It was a big, there was a, it was fairly step-by-step, although a little bit complicated process. But Random House, the editors there were, in particular Fiona Henderson, were really amazing and easy to approach. And we saw one step-by-step saying, they said, you know, we'd like you to write a book about this period of your life. And so you know, they pretty much left it open to me, but there was back and forth. I'd say, hey, should I, should I start back here or should I start here? Or... And so after a bit of back and forth, we sort of picked a time frame and I went through and just sort of mapped it out so I remembered all the correct dates and I could just get some scenes in my head again. Um, and then I started writing. And for the initial pe- period of time, I did try to put a, a word count on it because I was assuming a book of about 100,000 words in a year and so I sort of timed it out and initially I said I'd try to write 500 words a day but I found I got distracted by the word count but I wrote so I wrote 15,000 words with that approach sent it to Random House and the couple of editors there had a look at it and they said yeah it's it's not bad writing but it's not the voice that we're hearing on your blog you know and I looked back at it and showed someone else and the thought shit, shit, they're right about that. This is not really me. And I think I just become so focused on word count and almost like writing down scene by scene that I removed myself from it. So it was the first time I'd had someone, I felt like I had someone looking over my shoulder while I was writing, you know, um, and so I had to let go of that. So 15,000 words, it took me to sort of shake that feeling off. And then did, I you, it, did you chuck out those 15,000 words? Well, they're, ch- they're on the computer. Well, yeah, but then they didn't end up in the book. <laughs> no, they're not in the book and mm-hmm. I, I'll never use them. I've read back over it a couple of times and I just can't believe how bland it was. <laughs> <laughs> right. So um, what did you do then to get your voice back? I wrote to a friend of mine, Damon Young, who's a philosopher and writer in Melbourne and he's written a couple of books and I just like tweeted him one night and said, man, since I've been writing this book, I feel like I've lost it and I don't know if I'm going to get it back again. And he just wrote back very simply, it's about mood. He had, he'd had a similar problem with a book once and he went back and worked out how he could recreate that mood. Um, and so I started doing things that I'd always done, which was 
stick the headphones in and listen to some 80s classics and <laughs> and write when I'm really inspired as well as not just the set times um, um, and write about – I sort of chucked the plan out the door that I'd written because I'd never written with a plan before and I just thought start writing, you know, about what's happening right now um, and as well as writing – about things that you want to be included in the book that happened a long time ago. Yeah. And it just I just felt like I, again, hit that rhythm. But um, and there was a bit of back and forth with the editors too. So I'd write something, I think, this is sounding better, and I'd write it and they'd say, you know, yes, um, and give me some editorial suggestions. And, yeah, I feel like I'm back there. But I think the, the, the thing about getting offered the opportunity to write a book, which is something I've always wanted, you know, lifelong dream, once it was there, I, it sort of petrified me a bit. I was like a frozen meerkat or something. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it took me a bit. It was a great learning experience because I know if I get a chance again, I can tell, I can tell when that feeling's coming. And I, and I think if I narrow it down, it's about getting rid of that idea that there's, a, that there's someone over your head watching you as you write. Yeah. Once I get rid of that and I lose time, you know, when you're writing and you're yeah. having so much fun with it, that you all of a sudden you look up and there's like two and a half hours gone, you've written, you know, 2,000 words and, mm. and you think, God, how did that go so quick? That's the, I love it when that happens and that gives me a good indication that I'm writing with the voice inside my head and not Absolutely. with what I think someone else is seeing. It's being in that flow that makes yeah. it all so amazing and when yeah. it's hard work, you've got to be asking yourself, is this actually meant to be this hard? Yeah, the hard work should come later on, second and third and fourth draft and that sort of stuff, I think. Yeah. So tell us, did you write your book from scratch or did you go back to certain blog posts and rework them? Or a lot of bloggers think that they can slap together some blog posts and end up with a book. Yeah. Tell us what you did. What I did was I, I gathered everything that I thought I'd written well from the blog and I put it together in a large document and sent it to the editors at Random House, and they went through, picked what they thought could be used and rewritten, um, and basically said no to everything else. And so I ended up with a very small selection um, and, a, and a few blog posts that um, needed some rewriting to put them in context, because what they wanted and I wanted was a story, not so uh, beginning and an ending with some consistency, and writing in the... Uh, writing the blog, um, I'd write about the things, the most amazing thing that had happened that week rather than every little thing. Uh, or So there'd be blog people coming to my website who wouldn't be able to put certain things into context. Um, you know, and so I wanted to give a whole story. Um, so it, we, we selected a few blog posts that they said were just really, really great and they definitely wanted to include it. But even they needed rewriting. Um, I've got an obsession with including what music I've listened to or how it's influenced me during the day into every, every blog post almost. And, uh, and uh, that gets a bit repetitive when you put it in a book and give it to someone. <laughs> uh, there had to be other ways to sort of create that mood that I'd got across, sometimes just using examples of music and that sort of stuff. Um, mm. Yeah, but it was quite amazing and hard to get my head around and just had to set my sight on doing one bit at a time and uh, – and then there was a lot going back and saying, oh, but I haven't, this is um, important, but I haven't talked about, you know, this event 
that is linked to it and will make it make sense way back at the start of the book. So I had to go back and write about that, you know. Mm, yep. So in the end, um, yeah, I'm happy that some of my favourite blog posts that I think are some of my best writing ever um, has made it in there. But um, Great. Yeah. Um, so tell us, uh, once you got up, over that initial stumbling block of your first 15,000 words yeah. and you've, you've got back your voice. What then were some of your biggest challenges and how did you get over them? One of the biggest challenges was I was writing a book while also trying to maintain my blog. Yeah. Um, both Random House and I wanted to keep my blog going. Um, but the point is... the main thing is I have four children that I'm responsible for yeah. all day and a lot of the night and fitting that in just become completely, it just became too hard. So I actually didn't write for the blog for about a three or four month period and just had to suck it up. I didn't like doing that but mm. I found that if when I was trying to do both that the quality for both was had dropped, the writing for the, for the blog and the book wasn't great. So when I just focused on putting all my effort into the book, um, it was much, it was still hard because I had that, you know, deadline looming. Yeah. Or several deadlines that they put in place. But um, but it was much easier than trying to maintain the blog. It was hard to do that and I'm glad to be getting back into writing more regularly for the blog um, again. So that was the biggest thing. Um, now, back just, yeah, sorry. Sorry, no, I didn't mean to cut you off. But back onto your blog, then you, you've you've you're back onto it. A lot of people keep talking about you know monetizing your blog and that sort of thing. Yeah. Has that been one of your um, aims, or have you been mainly writing for the sake of writing? What do you do in that space? I've mainly been writing for the sake of writing, telling stories. But and I had no idea, you know that money was an option. But then once it, I became aware it was, I thought, why not do some things to try and bring some money in so that, you know, that great idea of being a paid writer it might actually be achievable, mm. you know. And so I, I have done some uh, a lot of work in the last probably two years to try and earn an income through the blog with the dream of, you know, the kids all being at school maybe four or five years from now and me, that's my job. I get to write and earn money instead of having to go, you know, to the factories or something. Mm -hmm. So I have put some time into that and that's, that was another thing that was weighing on my mind because obviously, you know, if you've got, I've got a blogging agent now, mm -hmm. Creative Jack Management, and obviously the thing that they sell you to brands with is how many hits and how many unique visitors and all that sort of stuff you get to your website every day or every month. And if you stop writing for your blog, <laughs> they drop off considerably and you're no longer really employable to even your your agent. Mm. So, but that's just, I had to just weigh up the pros and cons. And the most important thing for me at that point was to write a book to do that thing I've always wanted to do. And so I, I let my agent, Dana, know that that was going to happen and that my stats are going to plummet mm. and that I might not be employable and that I might not even get that level of, readership back through the blog, you know, there's always that chance. So but that, so I just had to make that tough decision. But I think the book's much better because of it and that's the most yeah. interesting thing. And I have no doubt that that level of readership is coming back, especially now with the release of the book. Now, tell us, what was your job prior to becoming a stay-at-home dad? 
I was a youth support worker for 10 years, um, specialising in housing, so working people between the ages of 15 and 25, sometimes younger. Um, and I worked in Warrnambool um, and in two organisations up here when I moved up to Melbourne. Um, so, yeah, it was 10 years. And then in the, well, probably the last year I went to part-time um, St. Joseph's Youth Services and then transitioned over to being the stay-at-home parent. Wow, very different from from writing. So um, do tell us, you've said that, uh, you know, to get into the mood that you put your headphones in and blasted out some 80s classics. If you had to pick your top three 80s classics to help you get into the mood for writing, what would they be? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> um, oh, man, I always suffer with this sort of stuff. Uh, Rick Astley gets me going straight away. Oh, my God. I know, it's terrible. But <gasps> a bit of Rick Astley. Um, and Nick Kershaw. I love Nick <laughs> Kershaw. Okay. Terrible. I know they're terrible, but, you know, I remember listening to Nick Kershaw um, at, at home when I was a kid and then climbing trees and throwing pine cones at cars. So I think that sort of joy is still there when I put Nick on. Good Lord. And I saw him interviewed the other day. Oh, my God. He's turned into this weaselly old man who seems to regret his musical past, which was a massive letdown for me. But Aww. I know, terrible. And uh, I listened to a lot of um, um, Culture Club, Boy George and Culture Club, which uh, and Wham, which again was uh, I used to listen to that in grade three all the time. I, you know, holding a holding a brush and um, seeing to myself in the mirror. Oh I, went to, I went to a school dress up once in grade three, dressed as Boy George. <laughs> Um, and there was another boy there who was dressed up as Boy George as well. I ended up getting a, a little bit beaten up. <laughs> Sad, but um, the only reason I didn't was because he had a wig on and I went without the wig. Oh, my so goodness. I, um, yeah. I would not have picked those if I had to guess. Um, only starts. I've got some, I, I've got some uh, more disco-y type stuff, which is what gets me going. But when I'm writing sort of hyped up blog posts, which, you know, uh, uh, an example of what it's like to get the kids out of bed and get on the road. And um, when I'm writing that, that puts me right back in the mood. And most of the time when we get in the car and I'm driving the kids around, I've got this thing on the website which I'm working on called Fanging It, Fanging it Friday, which is basically me recording myself singing in the Tarago <laughs> about the kids there. And because that's, music's always been like that for me, I can, if everything's hectic and crazy and I'm losing my mind and can't find socks and kids are saying I don't care and shrugging their shoulders at me and not eating their food. Mm-mm. Once we get in the car, we're all there together, Gold 104 or something from my iPhone comes up and we turn it up full bore and I know, we're all just back in the swing of it again. It's good fun. Um, so tell us what now. The book is out. Yeah. You know? What now? What are you working on now? Um, I'm working on getting writing consistently for the blog again, but I've had a lot of several other opportunities to write for magazines, um, online magazines and offline magazines. So I'm doing that as well and trying to fit it all in. Um, I just got another offer today actually. So it's, I might get more, yeah, I might get more of those, um, sort of paid opportunities. I mean, that's ideally what I'd like to do. I'd like to have the blog, not worry about that for income and be able to write regularly for magazines you know, and that's and the book hopefully to earn an income. 
Fantastic. So what's, what's your advice to listeners who are thinking, oh, should I be persi- persisting with this blogging thing? You know, I really do want to write a book one day. Will it ever happen? What's your advice to them? Uh, my advice is just never give in. Uh, if you're passionate about it and you love it, you just don't know when things are going to turn around. I mean, you couldn't, if you had said to tell me this is going to happen 18 months ago, I would have gone, yeah, sure, man. <laughs> but um, never give in. And one thing I think about writing, that thing we talked about earlier, is to forget someone's looking over your shoulder. Because I read a lot of, uh, I don't want to give out advice like this because I might end up sounding like an arsehole, but <laughs> when, there's a lot of blogs that sound uh, the same. And I think the yeah, thing yeah. that I got picked up for to write a book was not so much what I was writing about, but the voice that I was writing with. Mm. Uh, and it took me a long time, and I think it was only blogging, because I've written five novels and a crap load of short stories. And I've, I think it was only when I started blogging that I thought, hey, I'm writing with the voice inside my head. And, I saw, and I'd heard all the things, you know, write, find your voice, all that sort of stuff, but I'd never really got it. And I think, um, yeah, blogging was the thing that helped me find that voice. Mm. They, it's about locking yourself away, getting those things you love the most, um, writing about the things that really, really get you going, instead of thinking, I never think, okay, how can I write something to get more hits to my blog? Never, ever do it. I always write about something that might be going from one thing to the next at home and I think, God, that's got to be funny. I've got to write about that or, geez, that really hurt my feelings or I'm feeling very emotional about this and I really want to write about it. So I never think um, I'm going to write for stats. I think if you do that, you're going to sound just like pretty much everyone else. Um, so write about what's going on in your life because there's no one Someone showed me this great quote the other day. I'll never remember it because it was very long, but there's no one else in the – basically said there's no one else in the world who has your experience, is you, you know, sees the things think things the way you do. So we can all write about the exact same thing but give such a, an amazingly different story and a different approach. Mm. One, Yeah, wonderful raw uh, and raw but very simple advice on how to find your voice. And uh, Kerry Sackville, who was the, a judge in the Best Australian Blogs competition, I think summed it up. And this quote's actually on the cover of your book, which I love. And she says, if David Sedaris had got married and had kids, he would have been Reservoir Dad. Fall on the floor funny, sharp, witty and just a little bit sexy. And I just think that, I mean, we think that the book is awesome. I have no doubt it's going to be a huge hit and I can't wait to see your next book, Clint. So yeah. hopefully that's in the works as well. The big, oh, the big hope for me is that the book is successful and I get a chance to write another one. One of the first meetings I had with Random House just recently and met, met everyone at Random House, they're all fantastic. And I, I basically said, so how many copies need to be sold so I get a chance to write another book? Great question. So, yeah. <laughs> so um, I have no doubt uh, that the second book is going to happen. So on that note, thank you so much for your time today, Clint. We wish you the best. It's absolutely awesome. Everyone should get this book because um, Clint's writing is fantastic. So thank you for your time today, Clint, and check out his blog, Reservoir Dad. So that was Clint. 
Um, I think one of the interesting things that uh, came out of that was, you know, the fact that he submitted his first few chapters and it just sort of didn't work. But, you know, he didn't let that phase him. He got back on his horse and he, you know, shift, he had a mind shift about how he needed to approach the work and, and really let his voice come out and, um, you know, tackled it again. And the result is this fantastic book. I think he just suffered from stage fright. And, I, I you know, you do see that with a lot of people who, who um, will sit down to to write a project and and it's like I'm writing a book. Mm. I have to write a book, and so suddenly they go into this weird book voice. Yeah. Um, and I did the same thing when I first started writing fiction. It was quite interesting. It was like I'm going to sit down to write a novel, and so when I mm. sat down to write a novel, um, <laughs> it came out in this very strange sort of way. And you know what? I have to say, having had that entire conversation about the creative well and blogging and hamster wheels and mm. stuff. <laughs> I think that one thing that brought me back to my voice was actually blogging. I know that's really weird, but there's a certain, if you read, it's quite funny because if you read the first few posts on my blog back from back in the day, mm. they're very magazine-y. Like there's very much a broadcast feeling to, those, yeah, to right. those particular posts. Whereas as I went along with it and I got more comfortable and I had more, you know, sort of like a new sort of more people and I was doing more stuff, the intimacy of tone that blogging requires in that sort of style of blog that I did which or do, which is sort of parenting, personal life, whimsy, you know, all that sort of stuff, mm. um, it requires it does require intimacy and I had to unlearn magazine writing to really find that mm. and I think it helped immensely with my fiction writing because I found that voice and it wasn't I'm sitting down to write a novel, mm. it was I'm sitting down to write and that's a different, it's a very different feeling. It's interesting because now when, because more and more journalists, particularly, um, you know, now that they're discovering blogging, are coming online. Mm. I think a lot of non-journalists discovered blogging and became bloggers earlier. Mm. But as more journalists and feature writers come online, I've been noticing as I've been reading their blogs that they haven't found their voice yet. They're still writing in the style that they would write if it was, yeah. you know, a traditional publication. Yeah. And so, it's and it's quite different. That broadcast voice different. is very different to what a blogging voice is. And yeah, it's it's it, it that was a huge learning curve for me. Mm. Um, I wrote a post after my first year of blogging called 12 Things I Learned" mm. in my first year of blogging, and that. that was one of the main things I learned. It was, you know, it was a huge learning curve, and mm. and great. It's so good for you in so many ways oh, to absolutely. find what you think about things and how you want to say things, not how a publication wants you to say things. Exactly. It's so conditioned. Right. But anyway, what's our app pick for the week, Alice? Ah, well, speaking of journalists and um, freelancing and things like that, I've come up with possibly not the world's most exciting app, and I feel <laughs> that people are going to think, oh, good on you. However, I am going to say this as a person whose wallet is stuffed with receipts all the time, that this little app called Expense Tracker by Silverware Software is something that I feel I mean, and this is a little bit do as I say, not as I do, because I, I have yet to start. I have downloaded this, but I'm yet to start using it. Um, it's basically a way of keeping track of all of your expenses. You can, you can um, like, every if you go for coffee, you meet a client for coffee, you do whatever, you put it into your expense tracker. If you have a receipt for magazine, you know, you get the random receipts that you get for the mm. paper you picked up or the magazine, you can take a photo of it and put it into your expense tracker with the date, the time, et cetera, and it will log all of the business, you know, all of your expenses that you that you incur. And as a freelance writer, there are so many 
things that you can claim on your tax that you need to keep track yeah. of. And this is something, um, and it also has a um, mileage log, et cetera, for you, you know, if you're using your car. Oh, wow. So it's a really handy little app. And I do think that, you know, we we've talked several times about the fact that you, if you are a freelance writer, you need to treat your writing like a business. You are a business. And I think that keeping track, you know, of your receipts without necessarily resorting to a shoebox is not a bad idea. This is, I honestly, I am looking at this now and I'm, there's lots of screenshots in the um, URL that we'll put in the show notes that you can have a look at. And this is really good. In fact, on my to-do list is actually a line item that says, find better way to track expenses. There you go. And I love this because you literally can just take a photo of the receipt yeah. and keep it that way. I, yeah. It's It looks so easy. I'm getting it. Like, I'm okay. not, I'm, this is not a sponsored <laughs> This is thing. not a sponsored post. <laughs> or, or anything. I actually really think that this no, looks really good. I think it. I think it's um. You know, as I, same with me. It was a bit like I need to find a better way to do this because I've just got you know drawers full of mm. bits of paper and you know. And the other thing is also half the time the receipts that you get these days fade out so oh, yeah. badly. Yeah. That you know, by the end of twelve months, it, you can't even read it anymore. So this mm. this is a great way to keep track of what you're actually what you're actually doing. Good pick. Yay. Um, so what's our working writer's tip this week? Well, our working writer's tip this week is a great little post from uh, rachelslist.com.au. And if you're not aware of Rachel's List, it's a terrific little website that connects freelancers with jobs. So if you're a freelance writer and you're looking for jobs, it's got a whole lot of, you know, um, post a job, find a job, send a shout. Like if you're looking for people um, mm. for case studies or experts or anything like that, it's it's all there. But she has done a blog post and I'm just uh, sorting it out now, but um, where she was asked about how much to charge for content marketing stuff. Mm. And this is a question that comes up a lot for me um, within the various things I do. So, like, I often get emails, oh, I've been asked to do this job, how much should I charge? Now, content marketing is one of the few places where you're actually going to be asked what you want to, like how yep. much, you know, how much you, you um, charge for things. With you working for a publication, they're going to tell you how much they're going to pay you. I yep. mean, you know, pretty much that's how it works. Um, but this particular post, what should I charge for content marketing? And um, they go through the um, a little bit of an outline of, you know, if you're working for digital agencies, um, you know, you would want to be looking at at least 50 to 60 cents a word. But then there's the caveats of, you know, this is not a heavy piece. The client has probably provided you with a brief source material, perhaps an expert that they like quoted. Mm. Um, whereas with other things, like if you're doing a blog post for um, small to medium enterprises, they're probably going to be shorter. If there's no expert quote required, she charges around two to 300. And it depends on the regularity of the work. And that's yeah. something else you need to bear in mind. But if you're sort of looking at doing this kind of work, this is not a bad um, starting point, mm. have a look at the post that she's written um, because I think it will give you an idea of what – because half the time the biggest problem you have is what are, what are other people charging? Who knows sort mm. of thing. Um, so what do you think about that? I think that it's really good that she has shared what she charges. Yeah. Um, I think there are lots of variables including yeah. – and I think that it's good that she's got, done a, quite a good outline in that, you know, you charge this if you have to get a quotes from an expert, but if you don't need to get quotes from an expert, obviously it's less, you know, not as much time, so you can charge this. But I think it's also important to find out if your role is client-facing. If you're dealing with a digital agency, it probably isn't. You're just dealing with the agency who then deals with the client. But in some cases – you 
you may need to deal with a client who um, may have a good understanding of what you're up to or may, may not. And so it's hard to dis- determine whether it's going to be a smooth process or not. So it's the kind of thing where you may need to actually do a couple and or do a, you know, a few posts and, and then reassess. Because yeah. if you have a client who has 20 changes <laughs> yeah. as opposed to two changes, then, you know, you need to factor that in. But I do think, though, what's really important is that you need to, even though people always say, what is everyone else charging? I think it's very important to think, what amount would you be happy to receive? Yeah. Because if you're happy to receive it and the cl- the person is happy to pay it, win-win. But yeah, if, yeah, you're, yeah. if you're going to remotely resent it, then even if you get the job, you're going to resent it. So yeah, that's right. Always think of the amount you're happy to receive. Well, there's a, and there's a couple of comments on the bottom of this post. Obviously, people are starting to share what they do as well, so you get a bit more of an idea of you know what other so what you know Rachel's doing, but also what you know other people are doing as well, mm. which will give you an idea. As you say, I think that what you're happy to receive is probably the most important you know, bottom line, underlying factor. But it never hurts to know what other people are doing because you can price yourself out of jobs, yep. you know, True. quite easily or undercharge really badly. And that's probably more of a problem in some ways is, you know, if you, as you say, you might be happy to receive the $40, but at the end of the day, you know, it, you probably find yourself with ongoing work at $40 and is that really what you want to be doing? So you've got to think about but these things you, as well. But then you wouldn't be but then happy, you're not happy to receive it. No, so you're right, that's, you're right. Yeah. But if you're happy, you're happy. That's the end of the story. Mm, okay. Happiness is all. <laughs> so this week we just want to do a shout out to DS Bain. And uh, DS Bain has a weekly writing podcast review. And DS Bain featured us as the show of the week and Yay. has called us and has said this show is quirky and fun chat-like format, but full of golden nuggets of information. And Thank they cover you. a wide variety of topics on freelance writing press releases, blogging, etc. And um, and they've mentioned that uh, our Hugh Howie interview. So um, thank you, D.S. Bain, for that shout-out. We really Indeed. appreciate it. We, we do. We also appreciate all of you who are leaving um, reviews on iTunes. Thank you so much. If you have any questions for us that you'd like us to address on the show, uh, email us at podcast at writerscentre.com.au and um, you can find us too. Now, Alison, where can we find you? You can find me at alisontate.com and that's two L's in Alison. Two L's and and T-A-I-T. And Alison also has a, is it monthly newsletter? I do have a monthly newsletter. I've just sent that out recently. Um, yes, yeah, so this is the other thing. Like when you think about why is my blog not updated, I have podcasts and I have newsletters <laughs> and I have <laughs> all manner of other exciting ways to get in touch with me. Uh, yes, I do have a monthly newsletter and um, I would love it if people would sign up to that because it's a great way to um, be in touch. Wonderful. And um, you can find me at com. I, I have what it says is a weekly newsletter, oh. but I must admit <laughs> that I do not really follow that, but I'm hoping to get back into the swing of it. However, we do have a very good weekly newsletter at uh, writerscentre.com.au full of fantastic information and resources. So um, we look forward to having a chat with you on that as well. And in the meantime, we're, we're going to sign off soon. So what are you going to be up to, Al, until we chat again? 
well, I'll just be over here in the corner writing if you need me. That's where I will be because that's what I do. Wonderful. And I, I will be, oh, well, who knows, might be discovering more hidden secrets and visiting some more small bars. Yeah, look, you might, you might get, get a taste for that. You better be careful. Uh, I know. <laughs> All right. Until next time, thank you so much for listening. Talk to you next episode. Bye. 